have our psalm reading for today. Isaac's going to read it for us. Do I need a paper? Happy are those who, whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are those who keep his decrees, who, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, what my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statures. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteousness. Or ordinances, I will observe your statures. Do not utterly forsake me. Beginning reading in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard it said to those who live long ago, don't commit murder, and all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. If they say to their brother or sister, you idiot, they will be in danger of being condemned by the governing council. And if they say, you fool, they will be in danger of fiery hell. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First, make things right with your brother or sister and then come back and offer your gift. Be sure to make friends quickly with your opponents while they are with you on the way to court. Otherwise, they will haul you before the judge. The judge will turn you over to the officer of the court, and you'll be thrown into prison. I say to you in all seriousness that you won't get out of there until you have paid the very last penny. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to fall into sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose a part of your body than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to fall into sin, chop it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose a part of your body than that your whole body go into hell. It was said... Whoever divorces his wife must give her a divorce certificate. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual unfaithfulness forces her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And again, you have heard that it was said to those who lived long ago, don't make a false pledge, but you should follow through on what you have pledged to the Lord. But I say to you that you must not pledge at all. You must not pledge by heaven because it's God's throne. You must not pledge by the earth because it's God's footstool. You must not pledge by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king. 
And you must not pledge by your head because you can't turn one hair white or black. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. When I was a kid, I hated to lose. Hated to lose. I think there's a picture to get you an understanding of, of what it looked like, my brother and I, uh, when we were kids. This is the face of competition right here. Most of our summer afternoons ended or were at least interrupted by my three and a half year old junior brother or me running in completely red-faced because of some competitive conflict. He hates to lose even more than me. Sometimes that conflict was over like ghost runners in our one-on-one -on -one wiffle ball games. You can imagine there'd be a lot of interpretation there. Uh, sometimes it was music or it was uh, put the overhead ceiling fan on or where to sit or which controller needed to lose and we both wanted to gain a competitive advantage. Can I get an amen from people with siblings? Yes, yes, was. I had a few ways to avoid losing to my brother by being that. First, I got to rely on my overwhelming size, strength, and coordination advantage by being that much older and that much bigger. And that worked pretty well until my brother grew about four inches one summer in college and it got a lot stronger than me all of a sudden. I also could always figure out a way to get in my brother's head by picking at him, by teasing him, by trash talking. These, this is a generational curse I'm finding with my kids as they're coming of age, right? Uh, could also take cheap shots, you know? That's kind of like 3A. And 3B is I could change the rules, right? That's kind of a, a, a more subtle cheap shot. We do this all summer, our whole lives, rinse and repeat. Those are easy things to see, especially in hindsight, of the things you do to avoid losing. I think it takes a lot more insight and a lot more courage to see the many ways that we live our lives hating and terrified of losing. Games are just like microcosms. They don't with the discipleship course. Here's where the ethical rubber hits the real-life road. As Christian pointed out last week in his sermon, Jesus is turning up the intensity. He's, he's turning up, not down, the sensitivity on our lives. Jesus is calling, and Jesus is enabling us to taste and see the Lord's goodness, and he's allowing others to do the same through our saltiness and our illumination. And as he does it, it really feels to me like he's exposing us. He's exposing our propensity to do anything but lose. I mean, look at his list in our passage. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't leave someone high and dry and divorce. Don't bear false witness. Each, if you do those things, is an attempt to be the last person standing. You only murder if you think life is a zero-sum steel cage match and only one person is going to get out of the thing alive, and it better be you. 
right? You only commit adultery if you're myopic and opportunistic and you only look for your needs, your desires, your next feeling of being desirable. And Jesus is a realist that divorce is messy and marriage is even more messy. And left to our own devices, we'd probably bail on marriage to protect ourselves, regardless of what happens to the one whom we were once one with. And just a little note, Jesus is not talking about an abusive marriage here. He's talking about an abusive divorce is, is actually his warning. And then he goes on about lying. Well, this is a skill that we've learned since we were kids. Everyone knows that when you bend the rules or you just like downright dispense with the truth, that's the best way to make people like you, or at least to not know the truth about you. The tr- those little, we even have a word for it, and we borrow like the Spanish word, pecadillos, like those little sins that we don't think matter, or those little lies. We lie to ourselves also. We lie whenever we come scarily close to the truth that we don't measure up to what we think we should be. We lie on the stand to protect what we've done and who we are from the scrutiny of the truth. So when it comes down to it, most of our lives are spent trying to win, or at least trying not to be embarrassed by losing. We do anything. We use all these methods and more to avoid losing. It's into this reality that Jesus speaks. He speaks as one with authority. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. That's his preface over and over. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Some have commented, maybe you've grown up hearing this uh, from the pulpit or like the party line, that Jesus is just dealing out impossible teachings to show us just how sinful we are and to throw us back on ourselves if we actually try to do these impossible spiritual ethical feats, and then it'll throw us into the arms of God's mercy or something like that. Maybe you've grown up with that. Usually, this line of thinking is like an escape hatch, though. It, it's a way for us to not take Jesus that seriously while paying lip service that we actually believe in Jesus. It normally produces some pretty warped ethical worlds about how Jesus calls us to act in the real world. I won't argue that what Jesus presents to us isn't pretty stinking hard. Maybe actually it is impossible. But it's indeed an intensification of the law. And Jesus seems to get really granular here. But I, I, want to work, I want us to work with the twin assumption that Jesus actually means what he says and that Jesus is bearing good news, not bad news. Jesus is bearing good news to the poor, freedom to the captive, sight to the blind, deliverance to the oppressed. I doubt that he's just out here trying to give us bad news that further enslaves us and traps us and makes our vision more narrow, right? What Jesus is witnessing, too, is the kingdom coming and how that kingdom works. What if he's introducing a whole new, a whole different, a whole riskier logic? What if this is continuing to build off the guest list from a couple weeks ago in the Beatitudes where all the wrong people are blessed and all the privilege uh, in this kingdom is, is on them, the poor, the hurting, the mourning, the humble, 
the meek, the peacemakers? What if, what if Jesus is talking about this kingdom that breaks in and surprises us? What if Jesus takes us further than like do no harm, which is how we live most of our lives? We think we're doing pretty good if we do no harm. And he takes us away from a self-righteous mode of proving and protecting ourselves into the easy burden and the light yoke of losing. He's giving us permission to lose. What if he's not doing this because he's crazy and he's not doing this because he's cruel, but he's fitting us for the way things really are. He's casting a vision of a realer real, the kingdom of God, the very kingdom in the ways of being in the kingdom that we often buffer ourselves against most of the time. One of the reasons I think this is because Jesus comments on the law as a lover of the law. So I, I think we can trust him in his interpretation. He's not trying to get rid of it. He's trying to resuscitate it. He wants to see God's law live and breathe and run wild because the law was always supposed to be like the smoke and the heat of God's people that told you that the fiery God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and Ruth, and David, and the prophets was near. If you saw people keeping the law with their whole heart and mind and soul and strength, you knew God was amongst them. So he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. It can sometimes be heard as someone preaching a whole new program and kind of like throwing shade on his fundamentalist background. Like that's how we hear it as like deconstructors, right? Perhaps this would be true if Jesus wasn't so deeply involved in what the triune God was doing the whole time. If he wasn't so deeply embedded into Israel's story. So Jesus speaks, and when Jesus speaks, it's the word speaking, the word through which everything was created. Now the word made flesh, and he's speaking new creation, right in the midst of the old. Jesus is in these challenging, confusing, complicated, and hard words. He's giving us a decoder ring to see and tools to live by this new fulfilling reality. So Jesus unleashes these statements, inviting us into a discipleship for losers. You guys, are you guys in on this? Like, we're in for a discipleship for losers? This is a discipleship for those who don't win on purpose, who don't assure our own victory, who don't assure mutual destruction when we can't get victory. The seven-year-old me hates this. <laughs> The 37-year-old me hates this. It makes me feel so exposed. See, I've done pretty good at not murdering. There are some days. I've uh, done pretty good at not cheating or divorcing or lying under oath. But man, when you start to get into Jesus' nitty-gritty, things start to ping all over, right? I get angry for the same reasons I'd want to kill someone. I want to be right. I want to be safe. If it's them or me, it's got to be me. I lust 
because I want to be more than I am or have. I tell those little white lies to others and to myself because the truth of the matter might not look so good. Recently, one of our kids um, came home from school, like totally flummoxed, and was, said, Mom, do you know that sometimes people lie to, so that they seem more interesting? It was, <laughs> I was like, who are you talking about, son? <laughs> it makes me wonder, makes me wonder about other you have heard it said, like in our own lives. And this is maybe something to explore throughout this week. Things that are in circulation that you have heard it said that in, you think is good or you think it's a bar that you can clear. Good things that we manipulate in order to win or at least to appear not to lose. You have heard it said that you need to win via, and this is not an exhaustive list, and it kind of makes me blush, but that you can win via being more informed than fill in the blank. By being more under control as a parent, by being more performatively woke, <laughs> by being more moderate or by being more radical or by being more conservative or by being more progressive or be, being more detached and cynical, because no one can touch you if you're just kind of cynical, right? Or being more upwardly mobile or by being more carefree or by being more local, sustainable, small batch, artisan, etc., or by being more self-righteous. But I say to you, less is more. Down is up and losing is winning. The future doesn't belong to anyone but Jesus. To be on the right side of history is to be by Jesus' side. To be part of Jesus' motley, strange, downright, awkward, chosen family. You, if you want to make these lists for yourselves, the, the key is to do like reverse engineering here and find out the things that you do or the things that you value or the things that you spend a lot of time and effort on and then to examine them and say, okay, why do I do that? Obviously, I think it's right. We don't do things that we think are not right or good or worth our time. But then go a step beyond and say, what, what else do I get from that? What is the byproduct of that I get from that? What do, do I feel when I do that well and someone else notices me doing that? And, and then you, you start to really get into what this, what's behind the thing, where my heart is, what, what, what is animating us. So Jesus, in this, he uses this really, like, ad absurdum logic. Um, if you don't know what that means, it's, uh, it's kind of like the, the kid's book, if you give a mouse a cookie, right? If you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to ask for milk. And if you give him some milk, he's going to want a straw. And if you give him a straw, he's going to want a mirror so he can make sure he doesn't have a milk mustache. And while he's in the mirror, he's going to realize he needs a haircut and he's going to need scissors. And then he's going to need a broom to sweep it up, that sort of thing. And so never give a mouse a cookie, right, is the moral of the story. In Jesus' list, though, he says, leave your gift at the altar when you're going to offer a sacrifice because you're angry at your neighbor. Just leave it, go. The crazy thing is, this is a living 
walking, breathing sacrifice. When you go to offer a sacrifice, you're, you're journeying to the temple and you're bringing something alive with you. So to leave your live chicken or turtle dove or goat uh, there is to walk away from your sacrifice or to have your sacrifice actually walk away from you. This would be so silly to his hearers. Jesus is saying, though, in that absurd logic that our horizontal relationships that, we're, that we need to repair and our vertical relationships that we're going to offer our sacrifice are tied in a knot that can't be untied. Reconciliation is worship is reconciliation. Your personal, like the personal conflict, maybe even on the way here this morning to church, isn't an obstacle towards worshiping God and participating in community. Moving towards healing and repentance and reconciliation is the very action of worshiping God and participating in community. It's, it's not an obstacle to the thing, it's the thing. That's what Jesus is saying. Or, or maybe uh, an, another one he does is settle your disputes out of court. Like, <laughs> walk with the person that you're in a lawsuit with to court and try to figure it out before you get there because it could go really south. He says, don't let it get that far. Nip it in the bud because when this thing goes sideways, you'll go from the judge to the guard to the prison to bankruptcy when you could have just settled out of court in the first place. In trying to win, you'll lose big, he's saying. Or the, the really gruesome example he, he gives at the end of limping away bloody and blind is better than burning in hell. Amen, right? Which, both of these options, of course, like not lusting is better than both of them, right? Uh, I think that's what he's saying. So what do you really have to lose? So here's the kicker, though. That there's an asterisk on losing, right? I think this asterisk is really big. We're, we're being discipled in how to lose, but there's an asterisk on losing, and I think this asterisk is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. I think this asterisk is the new heavens and the new earth. I think this asterisk is the asterisk of God's justice and mercy. This is the asterisk of Jesus. This is the same Jesus that Philippians 2 has this beautiful Christ hymn that says, because Jesus, who was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped or maximized or, or held onto, but rather emptied himself, taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This, my friends, is a deep Theology of losing, of emptying, of slavery and servanthood, of death. It's a theology of the cross. There's a little text note here for my New Testament nerds out there. Uh, often this gets translated as although. Although Jesus was in the very nature of God, then he does this losing thing. As if Jesus is drastically departing from who God is. Jesus is doing something very anti-God-like in emptying himself. A better translation, actually a translation that pre-modern interpreters and more recent scholars are using is 
because Jesus was in the very form of God. He got to the emptying, into the losing, into the serving. Jesus' losing was not incidental to who God is. It was actually how God is. This is the very shape of God. When we see, the Colossians says, the invisible God, it looks like Jesus on the cross. So if you want to grow in God, if you want to be formed in Christ-likeness, get to losing. Get to the truth that the generous God of the universe wins by losing, by giving it away. That God won this world back by giving God's only son to lose his life on the cross. It's the climax of the whole story is, is this giant loss that becomes our win. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, only the cross is God's truth about us makes us truthful. Those who know the cross no longer shy away from any truth. We don't have to hide. We don't have to try to win. We don't have to do all the things that we do because we're scared. Because we think we're going to be exposed. Because we don't think there's enough. So we think if we empty ourselves out, there won't be anything left. Well, it doesn't make for very good advice, and it won't qualify as self-help. This losing ourselves to find ourselves in God is the only way to be a true human. It's the only way to be fully and truly human. Again, I, I promise this would be good news. <laughs> and I think that good news kind of comes in the next line of that Philippians hymn. Therefore, all this losing, therefore... God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's good news. Amen? Yeah, yeah. On heaven, on earth, and under the earth, God's kingdom is so expansive. God's love is so deep and high and wide that even our losing won't be losing. All those things that you fear make you prone to all those things that we've mentioned, you can let go. I think that's the good news, that life in Christ is abundant, lasting life is available by faith for those of us who are willing to risk, willing to lose, willing to find, willing to become heirs to God's upside-down kingdom. So I'm learning to love losing. It's not coming easy, and it's not quick or automatic. Sometimes it, it starts with little things, like learning to maybe not love, but bear with and not defend against losing arguments. Learning to leave things on the table and not wringing every ounce of leverage out of every interaction you have with someone. Oof. Learning to not have the last word, even when that last word that's hanging in the air doesn't really satisfy or reinforce who I think I am or what I want to project. I'm learning to abandon parts of my privilege and power that I can see and continue to interrogate the parts that are still kind of opaque to me. Against the idea that none of this is practical or practicable, 
and I just need to get on to apologizing to God and doing whatever I want, I'm trying to learn how to be a beginner in this kingdom. We're always going to start again in this work. Recently, Noah, my oldest daughter who's eight, um, started playing piano. And some days are good, and we're really glad that her keyboard has headphones. Uh, but some days are not good. And some days she totally forgets where her fingers start and doesn't even know where to look to figure that out. And, and it's, it's a, a, a familiar but kind of a foreign thing to see someone being a beginner, like a true beginner. Because I don't know about y'all, but I, I, don't, I don't, at this point in my life, do a lot of things that I don't want to do or that I don't feel good at. And if I do, I do it just enough so that I'm like awkward and not accountable to them, but I'm not going to stick with it long enough that like I should be getting better and uh, I'm not that good, you know? Like Spanish, like I, I've been doing the Spanish app for more than a year and I am not looking to engage in a conversation with a native Spanish speaker because I will be exposed in it. Um, but channeling G.K. Chesterton, he says anything worth doing it's worth doing badly. Do, do we think that's true? <laughs> Anything worth doing is worth doing badly. I don't think that means that we should never try to, to do good or never try to practice um, towards perfection. But I, I do think that this applies to our learning to live in the kingdom. Anything worth doing is worth doing badly. Trying to, to tamp down our anger, even if we're not that good at it, is worth doing badly trying to um, figure out ways not to lust when our desires run wild, even if we're not good at it, it's worth doing badly. So I'm, I'm muddling. <laughs> I'm learning to walk with Jesus, as we sang, and I'm stumbling along and I'm messing up, and sometimes I revert to my old and defensive ways that think there can only be one winner and that it's got to be me. But this discipleship for losers is the only way worth living. So I'm going to muddle along. <laughs> I'm going to ask for help. I'm going to ask for forgiveness. I'm going to ask for strength and endurance and all those things. I'm going to trust that all of this matters and that none of this is wasted because that's what a world of grace looks like and feels like. It's not hypothetical. It's fleshly. It's here. It's at hand. I'm going to stay close with Jesus because he's shown us the way. Will you all pray with me? Lord, we thank you for these hard and maybe even absurd words. We thank you for the ways that they show us something greater, something greater than our fear, something greater than our scarcity, something greater than our limited vision and our askew desires. Uh, thanks for uh, calling us to be beginners in this kingdom life because uh, we'll have forever to do it. You haven't left us alone. Help us join uh, with you as we witness to this better way, this truer way, this way that gives life, this way that requires faith, this way that, that heals. We thank you for all this 
In the name of Jesus. Amen.